0: So we're in Matthew chapter 5, working our way through the gospel according to Matthew, and now we're in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, in we started that last time with the, the Beatitudes, which begins the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, just as a quick reminder, um, the Sermon on the Mount basically is Christ's instruction on what life in the kingdom of heaven is like because that was the theme of his preaching. He he preached um, a message consisting of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And uh, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount describes in some detail what uh, that kingdom is like. In fact, really, uh, much of the Gospel of Matthew is taking, taken up with that subject. In fact, some commentators refer to the Gospel of Matthew as the Gospel of the, the kingdom. So the, the Beatitudes is basically the uh, description of the heart and life of the, the one who's a citizen of the kingdom. And uh, now Jesus begins to transition In verses 13 through 16, to talk about the the intersection of the kingdom of heaven and this present world. In other words, um, if we're members of Christ's kingdom, and every believer is, every believer has been transferred by God from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son of His love, how will that impact? our relationships with this present world. What will the, the uh, collision or intersection of those two kingdoms look like? And that's really what verses 13 through 16 are about. Jesus uses the figures of salt and light to make that point. And uh, those, those metaphors highlight our distinctiveness as his disciples in this present, dark, fallen world. So uh, let's look at this, Um, the distinctiveness of Christ's true disciples. And uh, the first metaphor that Jesus uses is salt. So he's talking about their saltiness, the saltiness of true disciples. So notice verse 13. He begins by saying, you, you are the salt of the earth. And who's he talking to? He's talking to the crowds, including his disciples. And so everyone assembled there wasn't necessarily a true disciple, but they were obviously interested, and they were subjecting themselves to Christ's teaching. So they were learners to that extent, And that's what a disciple is. And so everyone who is a disciple, a learner, a follower of Christ, is described as the the salt of the earth. And uh, I I read this week um, 11 different uses of salt in the ancient world. And don't worry, we're not going to talk about those 11 uses of salt Really, there were two main uses of salt in the ancient world, and uh, they both fit the uh, analogy, the teaching that Jesus is trying to get across. Um, One was as a food preservative, and another use, and these two most popular uses of salt were uh, as a flavor enhancer, just like we would use salt Today. And you can imagine the usefulness of salt as a food preservative with no refrigeration and living in the desert, uh, as Jesus did in those who were hearing him. Um, and so the idea seems to be, when he says, you are the salt of the earth, that followers of Christ, who, who manifest the beatitudes in their hearts and lives, like we saw last time and like Jay read this morning, we serve as a moral preservative in this present fallen world. We, we are meant to function in a way to, to keep the entire world from just being completely corrupt and ruined and uh, uninhabitable, basically. Basically. And at the same time, seasoning the world with Christ-like righteousness in the process. That's what I believe Jesus is getting across here by this um, metaphor, you are the salt of the earth. Let's camp there just a little bit. And just make sure that we're clear, first of all, with the need for salt. Salt. Why is it that the world needs followers of Jesus to be the salt of the earth? And um, I'd just like to direct your attention to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, and chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, and verse 5 a very unflattering assessment of fallen humanity. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now skip down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. So verse 5 prepares the way for verse 11. The depravity, the, um, the original native inherent sinfulness of fallen humanity corrupts the earth. And an example of... Moral corruption in the earth brought about by man's depravity is violence, sinful violence. Notice verse 12, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So you'll notice in verses 11 through 12, three times we, we hear this uh, form of the word corrupt. Corrupt, corrupt, corruption. This is why the earth needs salt. The earth is corrupt. When, when food rots, another way that you can put that is that food becomes corrupt. We live in a fallen, a corrupt, a rotten world. And just as salt was required in the ancient world, As a food preservative, so followers of Christ are called to be a moral preservative, a moral disinfectant in this present corrupt world. So that's the need for moral corruption, uh, for salt, I should say, the existence of moral corruption. And then um, there's a couple of New Testament examples that specifically use the idea of salt, Look at Mark chapter 9. And verses 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire, Jesus said. So here's salt being used again. And uh, the the idea seems to be um, uncorrupted or or refined by fire. And then in verse 5, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? And we're going to talk about that in a minute as we move on in Matthew chapter 5. But then listen to this. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So that's interesting when you think about what we just saw in Genesis chapter 6. The world is morally corrupt. And one of the indicators, one of the evidences of that moral corruption is violence. Well, uh, here Jesus says that the antidote to that moral corruption in the world is our saltiness and one specific way of our saltiness being put on display in our corrupt world is to be at peace with one another. And remember the Beatitudes, blessed are the, the peacemakers. And so This is our distinctiveness as Christ's followers. We're we're, we're not just one with the world in terms of the world's moral corruption and violence. We, We stand out from that. And we're not overcoming that using the same means, the same weapons. So you don't overcome corruption with more corruption. You don't overcome violence with more violence. But the antidote to the moral corruption of violence is is peace. And when we are at peace with one another, being peacemakers, then we are being salty in the earth. And then Paul uses the metaphor in Colossians chapter 4. Colossians, whoops, Colossians chapter 4. And notice verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. There's the metaphor of salt again. And here it's not a food preservative. Here it's a seasoning, right? Seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So one example of saltiness, peacemaking. Another example of saltiness, gracious speech. So doesn't that fit? Isn't our world, uh, doesn't the corruption of this world show itself in terms of coarse speech, Angry speech, condemning speech. And in contrast to that, how do Christians stand out? Not by being louder, not by being more angry, not by being more condemning, but by being gracious. This is how we have salt in ourselves in uh, this present evil and corrupt world. So some examples of believers' saltiness. Back to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus continues at the end of verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Then he continues, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. And we should talk about that. Because um, if you're if you have any familiarity with, with chemistry, you know that salt is sodium chloride, NaCl, and it is a stable compound, a stable molecule. Salt technically chemically, doesn 't decay. salt, pure salt, never loses its saltiness, it never loses its taste. but salt was very rare, uh, if not completely unknown in the ancient world. People didn 't obviously go to the store and get the container of a dispenser of salt um, when people would get salt, they would basically get salt ore uh, from the Dead Sea or other sources. And there was a bunch of things mixed in with the actual sodium chloride. And sometimes the sodium chloride would get leached out of the ore. And what you'd be left with is those, those impurities minus the salt that's what Jesus is referring to. He's not He's not speaking in chemically uh, precise terms. He's not speaking to an audience of chemists. I'm probably I I probably have more chemists per capita in this church than most pastors. <laughs> uh, but but understand that. That's what Jesus is talking about. And then uh, in that context, then uh, if there was basically salt ore that was harvested for its saltiness, but it had lost its saltiness so that basically the impurities were left and not the salt. It, it really was good for nothing. It wasn't good for preserving meat. It wasn't good for seasoning food. Uh, it was basically good only as a a pavement additive a mud additive to to help with roads which would then be trampled under people's feet this basically is what jesus is trying to say uh, through the whole metaphor it We're going to get down to verse 14 where Jesus switches metaphors to light and he says, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Well, in in the same way that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, so salt, true salt, genuine sodium chloride, cannot lose its saltiness. It will inevitably have its effect, just like light will. That's what Jesus is setting up here. But it seems to me that at the same time, there's um, a warning included in this. I mean, when Jesus says, for example, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet, that doesn't sound like an encouragement to me. It sounds more like a, a warning. And re- remember again who he's talking to, the original audience. It's a crowd. Um, and in the act of being under the teaching of Jesus everyone there listening to the Sermon on the Mount is basically identifying themselves as a disciple because they're willingly gathered to hear Jesus' teaching. They're being learners. But we know that not all professed disciples like that are the real thing. In, in John chapter 6 and verse 66, we're told that many Disciples basically turned away and followed Jesus no more. Judas betrayed Jesus. Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him, but Judas betrayed Jesus. So you've heard of a rhino in politics, Republican in name only. Democrats don't know that. That's that's a that's an in thing in Republican circles. A, a rhino. Well, in the Bible, uh, the Bible describes a dino. So instead of a Republican in name only, well, I guess dino fits for Democrats. Democrat in name only, but a dino in the Bible is a disciple in name only. And Jesus does make that distinction in John chapter eight and verse. 31, he he says that uh, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free and you will be my disciples indeed. That's the distinction. And so who are those in terms of this warning who are thrown out and trampled under people's feet? Not a genuine disciple who becomes a non-disciple. That opens, opens up the whole issue of losing one's salvation. Not somebody who has been born again and then becomes unborn again. Somebody who's been justified, then they become unjustified. Somebody who's been adopted, then they're unadopted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That can't be. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. But history is filled with disciples indeed and dinos. Those who for a time identify themselves with Christ and even walk the part, talk the talk, but they're not disciples indeed. And what sets them apart, according to Jesus, is saltiness. Saltiness, this preservative effect, this... The seasoning effect in the world, this being distinct from the world. All right, salt, their saltiness. And then Jesus describes true disciples in terms of their light, verses 14 through 16. Notice verse 14. You are the light of the world. So a new metaphor. Well, Jesus described himself as the light of the world. John 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. But here he's saying, you are the light of the world. And uh, this reminds us of the reality that um, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, is not just related to Jesus externally through our learning from him, through our following him. But, we're related to Jesus internally and spiritually because we're born from above. We're born again by the Spirit of God, which results in Jesus indwelling us, which he's going to go on to describe in John chapter 15. I am the vine and you are the branches. Uh, Abide in me and you will produce Much fruit. Jesus is in us, and we are in Christ. And because of that intimate, spiritual, personal relationship with Jesus, we partake of his holy nature. So, for example, Jesus is the Son of God, with a capital S. But we as believers are also sons of God, little s. And in, in the same way, Jesus is the light of the world, capital L, but because Jesus is in us and we radiate his light into the world because of his indwelling us, we are the light of the world, little Little l. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul uses the same analogy, for you were once darkness, and and we were. That's a description of our uh, spiritual state before we were saved. We were darkness. We we, we didn't see the light. Um, God who commanded light to shine out of darkness in Genesis chapter 1, shone in our hearts to to reveal the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We were in spiritual darkness and we lived in spiritual darkness. We we followed the, the prince of darkness, We were once darkness. But now, Paul says in Ephesians 5, 8, but now you are light in the Lord. We're not light in and of ourselves. There's not this existing switch that we can just flip on and off. But we have to be in the Lord, or more properly, the Lord has to be in us in order for us to be light In the Lord. And because that is who we are, Paul commands us walk as children of light. So obviously, when we walk as children of light, then we fulfill this teaching of Jesus. So back to Matthew 5 and verse 14, um, he goes on to say, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That's the thing about light. No matter how dim a light source might be, darkness can never overcome it. And in this case, Jesus is talking about a a city set on a hill. And in order for a city to be a city, there has to be a uh, a population. There's not just one person. But there's a whole bunch of people living in this city. Which is interesting because when you read through the entire Sermon on the Mount, you read through the Beatitudes, they don't apply very well to just me, myself, and I in my little holy huddle. Because I love Jesus, I just don't love the church. But it sure seems as if the commands from Jesus particularly apply to community living. And so that's who Jesus is addressing, the community of Christians, the community of disciples, a city. And when a city is set on a hill it can't be hidden the, the light is going to be is going to break through and in the same way when there is a community of genuine Christ followers the light from that community from that holy city cannot be hidden Notice verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Um, a, a typical Palestinian house in those days was one room. And um, I, from what, when I, what I understand, that graphic on the slide there. Uh, is an example of a typical kind of lamp. Uh, in the middle, you would put oil. There was a wick put through the end there with the, the flame, and the other end is is a handle. And uh, you would... People don't like living in the dark, and so um, you would take a lamp, and if, if you want to light up the house, you're going to put it right in the middle of the one-room house. And you'd, you'd put it on a stand. You'd You'd want to maximize... The light from that lamp to have its optimum effect in the house, and that's what people did. And Jesus uses that uh, to teach a lesson in verse 16 in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Don't hide your light. Don't separate yourself from the world. Don't just blend in with the world. Be in the world and let your light shine before them. Notice that when we do that, it's not for us. We're not trying to get points. We're not trying to impress people. We're trying to glorify God. And remember what we saw last time from Isaiah chapter 42, that God does not share his glory with another. And our salvation from the beginning To the end, our salvation is to the praise of the glory of his grace. Ephesians 1, 6. And that is not just theoretical. It's not just talk. It's not just doctrine. Although doctrine is part of it, you have to believe the right thing in order to be, or the right things, in order to be a disciple of Christ. But it's not just that. It, can be, it is observable. It can be experienced by others. Others know that it is good what's coming from us. It's seen and felt as good. But it's not about us. It's about the God of our salvation. So we looked at an example of um, salt, believer's saltiness. Here's an example of how we can let our light shine before men. Look in Philippians chapter 2. Notice verses 14 and 15 in Philippians chapter 2. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, I don't think this is the only way that we let our light so shine before men, obviously, Uh, any way in which we follow Christ, in which we keep His commandments, in which we imitate Christ, any way in which we're obedient to our Lord is an opportunity for us to shine our light before men. It's just that here's a specific example, and it's really interesting, isn't it? Paul doesn't say, here's how you can be here, uh, here's how you can let your uh, how you can shine as lights in the world. Don't drink, don't smoke, wear a tie, or whatever. Those are easy because they're external. The th- things that are challenging are things that come from the heart. And grumbling complaining that originates from the heart and so a great way for us as believers to shine as lights in the world is through our demeanor our attitude that shows that we're not grumbling or or questioning We're not constantly at war with other people. We're not constantly complaining about our situation in life. Have you ever met somebody like that? A complainer? They can never be happy. If it's it's cold outside, it's obviously too cold, and they complain that it's not warm enough, and then when it gets too hot, then they complain that it's not cold enough. Oh, wait a minute, that sounds like us in Ridgecrest. (laughs) But there's always something to complain about. They're never happy. They're never content. And at the end of the day, all complaining and grumbling and questioning, do you know who it's directed against? It's directed against God. Because God is the God of providence, He's the one who has you and me where we are. We're in the situation that we're in because that's where God has us. We're rich or we're poor, we're healthy or not so healthy. We have whatever we have in terms of trials in our relationships and on and on and on and on. Ultimately, ultimately, Because God has pre-appointed the boundaries of our habitation. And so, that's the secret of contentment. Learning that God is the author of my life. He's the God of providence. And he's wise and he's good. And the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. And so, when we have that kind of demeanor, that will make a difference in the world that is filled with complainers. I find that fascinating. All right, so salt and light. Here here are some takeaways. There's three. Um, The first one is Christ... Can be tasted and seen in every Christian's life. Jesus plainly emphasizes that reality. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Salt cannot be anything other than salty. It's part of the characteristics of salt and light. Just as salt is always salty and light cannot be hidden, so Christ's indwelling presence within a believer will come out for others to taste and see. That's never the reason for our salvation. That's not the cause of our salvation. It's the fruit, it's the result. And really, it's what separates disciples indeed from just professing disciples. It's obedience to Christ, it's Christ coming out through us and impacting the world. And uh, we're not going to say this every single time because it's going to get re- repetitive. Um, Matthew writes about such things over and over and over again, but it, it bears repeating, in my opinion, in, in, in our age of easy believism that basically reduces Christianity to a, to a decision or a prayer. I'm not saying Christianity doesn't involve a decision or a prayer but that's not all there is to it. Are you light in the world? Are you salty? Are you the salt of the earth? If if not, if there's just no difference between you and the world, if there's no impact for Jesus' sake in the world through you, as people... Uh, hang out with you and rub shoulders with you and talk with you, If, if it's just world, 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 then the teaching of Jesus says you're not a disciple. So come to him today and be saved. Become a disciple today and be saved. That's one takeaway. The second takeaway is that We must engage with the world but not be conformed to it. We must be engaged with the world but not be conformed to it. Another way to put it, and this is based on 1 John 2 verses 14 and 15, uh, which says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the lust of the, the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life The love of God, the love of the Father is not in him, etc. And we often translate that as uh, to be in the world but not of the world. I'd like to read for you a quote from commentator Richard France, R.T. France. He, He wrote, The distinctiveness which makes Christ's followers the object of persecution. And remember, That's what immediately preceded this portion on salt and light in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, etc. Then he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. It, It would be easy, in response to the world's persecution, to hide to retreat, to put on a disguise. So that's what R.T. France is writing about. The distinctiveness which makes Christ's followers the object of persecution is illustrated by the two images of salt and light. Each is essential, but has its necessary effect on its environment only if it is both distinct from it and yet fully involved in it. That's so interesting. Salt has to be different than the food to do the food any good. Light is different than darkness in order for it to do any good. And by the same token, the meat, ha- the salt has to be rubbed into the meat, come into contact with it, and Uh, Like we saw in uh, Matthew chapter 5, the the light has to be in the middle of a dark room for it to have its desired impact. Distinct from it and yet fully involved in it. And so R.T. France continues, So disciples must function in society as an alternative and challenging community. It is by their visible goodness that they will bring glory to the God who has made them so. That's why we shouldn't just run for the hills. And that's why, at the, by the same token, we shouldn't just blend in so that there's no difference. The third application is more of a historical one. Let's transform our nation, beginning with ourselves. And let me explain why I said that. So in the Sunday school hour, I said, I remember the days of J- JFK. No, I don't. My wife corrected me. I was, he was assassinated in November of 1963. I was born in January 1964. So I don't remember JFK's presidency but I sure remembered Ronald Reagan's presidency. When I was in high school, you know how guys have pictures of cheerleaders and Farrah Fawcett majors or whoever in their locker? No kidding, ask my wife, I had a picture of Ronald Reagan in my locker (laughs) in in high school. Uh, And I still consider him to be the best president in my lifetime, and I think he's one of the best presidents we ever had. And part of that was because of Reagan's love for America and his ability to cast this vision of America that transcended just politics. And that's why Reagan won so many Democrats to to vote for him, because he didn't just badmouth. But his vision of America, remember this? The Shining City Upon a Hill. And I, re- I remember watching his little speech on election, was it election eve? I think the night before election day in 1980 when he gave that speech, used that analogy. Turns out he used it in his political career before that. And then he also used the analogy in his uh, farewell address in 1989 uh, His vision of America was the shining city upon a hill. But Ronald Reagan didn't make that up. He borrowed that from John Winthrop, who was the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And uh, in 1630, as uh, this band of pilgrims was ready to land and uh, start the colony of Massachusetts. And by the way, this is 10 years later than the original pilgrims who landed at Plymouth in 1620. But I'm going to read for you an excerpt from this. It was a sermon. Today they call it a speech. It, It was a sermon. But this is how John Winthrop was preparing these future citizens of the colony of Massachusetts Now, the only way to avoid shipwreck and to provide for our posterity is to follow the counsel of Micah, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. For this end, we must be knit together in this work as one man. We must entertain each other in brotherly affection, We must be willing to abridge ourselves of our abundance for the supply of others' necessities. We must uphold a familiar commerce together in all meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality. We must delight in each other, make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work as members of the same body, so shall we keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as his own people and will command a blessing upon us in all our ways so that we shall see much more of his wisdom, power, goodness, and truth than formerly we have been acquainted with. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us when ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, when he shall make us a praise and glory that men shall say of succeeding generations, the Lord make it like that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be as a city Upon a hill. The eyes of all people. Are upon us. No wonder. No wonder. Our country. Has been so great. And has such a blessed heritage. And history. And when you read that. It's easy. Like I do. To look at what's happening today. And to go. Oh. My, how far we have fallen, how far away from these original roots we have come. And it's easy to get discouraged. But don't forget, John Winthrop and Ronald Reagan borrowed from the teaching of Jesus that applied to his people. And I'd like to read for you a passage from Peter, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, to make this clear. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Peter wasn't writing that to a particular political entity in the Middle East or beyond. He was writing that to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a holy nation his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's that metaphor again. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So why does that give me hope? I, I wish I could pray one prayer and God would just change, fundamentally change our, our country. And, he, and we should pray that way. God can do that. He has sent revivals and awakening, great awakenings in our history. He can do it again. But what is within our grasp is living out the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and beyond, in being salt and light in showing ourselves to be a holy nation with each other, with one another. And the way that that God's kingdom works is that light spreads and saltiness spreads. And so I have great hope for our country not because of any single political party or politician or political movement, but because I know that God lives. And I know that the Lord Jesus Christ is building his kingdom one salty disciple, light shining disciple at a time. That's where we must begin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word truly is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that your word would sanctify us. We pray that you will help us to be faithful disciples of Christ. Help us to be salty. Help us to be light. And we do pray, Lord, that um, that you would get the praise and the honor and the glory. And we do pray for our nation. Our nation was founded on gospel principles. We pray that there would be a new great awakening in our country that People would desire righteousness, that they would hunger and thirst after righteousness, that um, people would desire your word, that people would be converted by your word, and that the power of the Holy Spirit in salvation would transform this land. Use us, we pray. Use us here. In our Jerusalem, use us abroad, but use us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.